So let me read this, and then we're going to end up in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, and then if you want to put a thumb beside Exodus 19, we'll kind of be back and forth between those two. Okay, so last week was a critical week for understanding where we're going. So if you missed it, go back at some point this week and listen to it. But I'm going to review it just real quickly for the sake of today, because today will not make sense if you... um, don't have any idea what we talked about last week. So let me just do a quick review. Um, So in Exodus, we see of the Israelites that their slaves brought out of Egypt and into the wilderness where God at Sinai sets up a marriage covenant for them, okay? Um, And I'm going to blow through this. If you want to go back and get into details, go listen to last week. So We see the story, slaves come out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness, there at Sinai, in the wilderness, God sets up a marriage covenant for them. And he tells them, he says that, although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what we talked about was, um, a lot of times people want to say, God brought the Israelites, and here's the Israelites, and they're God's people, and then the rest of the world was not God's people. And that was, to, that was to be a prophetic kind of picture of what the Christians were going to be in the New Testament. No. God is saying, the whole earth is mine, but you will be a kingdom of priests. What are priests? Priests are mediators between God and man, right? So Israel, you're going to be my mouthpiece to tell the world that the world is mine. Huge difference, okay? So it's not you're going to be my people and everybody else is not going to be my people. It's you're going to be my people for the sake of everybody else being my people. Good? Okay, amazing. So he says on the third day that he, Yahweh, will come and speak to all people. And what would mark that moment would be the ram's horn, okay? The word ram in Hebrew is the word jubilee. If you go read about the year of jubilee... The ram's horn was what blew to signify the year of Jubilee being free. Uh, here, what was the year of Jubilee? Okay, The year of Jubilee was the year that all slaves are set free. Okay, All slaves are set free. All land is returned to its original owner, and every debt is paid. So, does that sound a lot like the Israelites? They leave Egypt, and now they're no longer slaves. They're about to go into the land that was promised them, so the land's going to be returned to them from the Canaanites etc. Right? Amazing. So, uh, the Lord says, on the third day, the ram's horn is going to blow, the the horn of Jubilee, and at that moment, you're going to come up to the mountain, and I'm going to speak to all people. All they had to do, leading up to the third day, when he would do this, which is also very significant, obviously, okay, third day, resurrection, um, All that they had to do leading up to that third day was consecrate themselves for that moment of jubilee when God would speak covenant with them. A.K.A., they had physically left slavery, but to truly be free, they would need to leave their enslaved hearts and minds. So God's saying, yeah, physically you're no longer slaves, but you're still slaves. So we're going to give three days, and in three days, I mean, think about the cross as I'm saying this, okay? In three days, I'm going to perform an act that's going to make you my permanent kingdom of priests, my bride. Amazing. But what you're going to have to do to lead up to that in order for you to live in that 
is to consecrate yourself. Is you're going to have to leave slavery out of your heart and mind behind. Well, they didn't do that because when the ram's horn blows, they're all terrified. And eventually in, in um, Exodus 20, they go to Moses and say, don't let the Lord speak to us. You go talk to the Lord instead. And then you come tell us what the Lord said because we don't want to hear what the Lord has to say. Why? Because they're still slaves. You know what I mean? And so um, it, it's just like, like if, if you are struggling with uh, looking at stuff on the computer you shouldn't look at, and you come into the church, and I preach a message on not looking at stuff you shouldn't look at, and you feel like this tall, right? It's because there's something within you that you haven't laid down yet. So when the Lord starts to speak, all of a sudden he's aiming at the thing that you're clinging to, and it feels like he's aiming at you because of the fact that you're clinging to the thing he actually wants to aim at. Right? Okay, so the Israelites have not left slavery. They still are slaved, enslaved in their hearts and minds. So when the Lord comes to them and starts talking about, you're not a slave, you're a bride now, all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 Right? And, you, of course, you don't see that. you you got to look into, uh, into the Hebrew and stuff. But the point is, is that when the Lord comes and speaks to them, they shrink back and they make Moses something that I do not believe Moses was ever supposed to be, which is the exclusive mouthpiece for the Lord. I believe Moses was supposed to be a spiritual father that stewarded the kingdom of priests to all hear from the Lord. But because they refused to do what they were designed to do, Moses now had to step in and be somebody that he was not designed to be. This is what the church is, right? I'm, so, I'm called to be a spiritual father and a shepherd. I am not called to be the TED Talker that y'all show up to Sunday and listen to. You know what I'm saying? I'm called to make sure that you're hearing from the Lord just as much as I am, not be the mouthpiece for the Lord, and that's all you hear from the Lord all week. But unfortunately, that's where a lot of the church is, and that's why a lot of churches enslaved, and that's why the Israelites over and 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 over turn away from the Lord. Right? Because Moses wasn't enough. They trusted in Moses when they should have been hearing from the Lord themselves. And I guarantee you, if they had consecrated themselves, went to the mountain and heard the voice of the Lord, suddenly when they get into the wilderness and they won't meet, they would not have said, let's go back to Egypt. They would have said, let's all go talk to the Lord and let him tell us what he thinks. But they didn't. They said, Moses, you go talk to the Lord. And when Moses is up talking to the Lord, what do they do? Build a golden calf and start worshiping it with the gold that they brought out of Egypt. I mean, you can't make this up. Okay, so all they had to do was consecrate themselves. They failed to do this. They've become comfortable in their identity, and therefore they refuse to let it go. Then God comes and speaks, and what does he speak? He speaks the Ten Commandments. And like I said last week, um, we good? Stuart? Good? Okay, thank you. Um, so I talked about this last week, and, and this is what I'm going to try to slow down because I want to go so fast right here, and I'm going I'm to make sure I don't. That we, when I say Ten Commandments, the first thing most of you think is those are the things God spoke to his people that if they don't do it, he kills them or they, something bad happens to them. And if they do do them, they're solid. And, and no, 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 the ten, the ten Commandments, and I don't even, you should, I, honestly, I'd probably go and just mark out that subtitle. We need to probably call them something else, okay? God forbid. Um, your subtitles are not, or, uh, are not divine. But anyway, um, he goes in, and he begins to not tell them, if you don't do this, you're dead. He begins to tell them how to be human again, because who are these people? They're a bunch of slaves. 
and they've been in Egypt and in slavery, well, guess what Egypt had? A bunch of other gods. And all they were forced to do was worship Egypt's other gods. So God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods except me. Why is he saying that? They don't know what that means. All they've ever known is Egypt. So he's saying, let me tell you what's reality. I'm the only God. And because I'm the only God, here's how to be human. You only worship the only God. In other words, you don't do delusion stuff. You do the one real thing. What does he say next? Okay. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven on earth, blah, 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 blah. And he's saying that because... God is looking for his people to be his image to the globe, right? And in order for them to be his image, they've got to lay down the idea from Egypt that the way you see the gods is an image made by man's hands. God is saying, no, the way that you see my image is to see the image of something made by the hands of God, you, So don't make for yourself an image. You shall not miscarry. Your Bibles say misuse. That's wrong. You shall not miscarry the name of the Lord your God. Why? Because you're the kingdom of priests telling the globe what I am like. So don't take this lightly. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? They've never rested. They've been slaves. God has to force them to rest. But to rest is to be a human, made in the image and likeness of a God who did what on day seven? Rested. So, right, remember the Sabbath day. Okay, so, so we, have, we have our thinking that you can't cut the grass on Sunday or else you're not remembering the Sabbath day. Which is, you know, if that's what you want to do, awesome. But, but then if you cut the grass, all of a sudden you feel bad because you did something on Sabbath day when you're not supposed to do anything. That's not the point. The point is, is that you're supposed to have a mindset of rest. He's telling those in slavery, you're not slaves anymore. You choose to rest. Okay? Honor your father and mother so that your days might be long on the earth. Honor your father and mother. Well, they've been in slaves, and all they have seen is people beat each other. And the Lord's saying, no, this ain't, we don't, for, here's what we do. You honor what your father and mother say. And guess who was supposed to be their father spiritually? Moses. You shall not murder. What have they seen in Egypt? Murder. Okay. You shall not commit adultery. They've seen adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet what your neighbor has, but be okay with what you have. Done. That's the Ten Commandments. Now you tell me, okay, what the Lord is doing in this is he's teaching them how to be human again because all they've ever known is how to be slaves. So the example I used last week was, if I go back, and I, I, it may be longer than this, but let's just say 200 years. I said 100 years last week. Let's say two. If I go back 200 years and sat, I think I said this Tuesday night actually. I'm getting them mixed up. If I sat in a Presbyterian, and I'm not knocking Presbyterians, they were just the ones that led the charge to secede from the Union in South Carolina. So I'm not knocking anybody. It's just reality. Um, so if I go into a Presbyterian church and 200 years ago and I sit down and I say, hey, um, slavery is not in the Bible. A, I would probably be murdered, killed. And B, I would absolutely be called a heretic. This, this is just American history. It's, you know what I'm saying? 
Okay? Um, 200 years now, down the road from that, it would be unthinkable for someone to sit in a pulpit and preach a message out of the Bible saying slavery is a good thing. Unthinkable, right? But if you go back to the time when Abraham Lincoln, for example, when all the slaves are uh, set free and they pass these laws and eventually get to the point where slaves are free now. If all you've ever been in is slavery, it doesn't matter how free you are, you're always behind those who have never been in slavery. You see what I'm saying? So for you, if you've been in slavery all your life and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, all they've ever known is slavery, and now all of a sudden you're free. Freedom has created a new kind of slavery because all you've ever known is slavery, right? So then what becomes the responsibility of those who have set them free is to step in, take them by the hand, and say, let's learn how to be a human again. And I'm using the language for Israelites now. Right? So God meets them at Sinai and says, You were never designed to be slaves, right? So I brought you out. But you and all you've ever known is slavery. So I, the Lord your God, your bridegroom king, am going to walk with you step by step and remind you what it means to be free and human again. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the book of the law. That's the rest of Exodus. That's the rest of Deuteronomy. Okay, the commandments were not to give them rules to keep or God would kill them. They were to show a bunch of slaves how to be human. This is a correct lens to have when approaching the Torah, when approaching the Old Testament, when approaching the prophets, etc. Not, as we'll study today, do this and you'll be this, but because you are this, do this. He's saying... You're not a slave, you're a human, you're my bride, and you're a kingdom of priests. Therefore, what this looks like is, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay. To be human, when I say that, is to be fully convinced of and living in the image and likeness of God. That's what it means to be human. Let us make man, humanity, in our image and likeness. At the base, that's what it means to be human. Okay, It is heretical to call human beings anything but image and likeness bearers of God. So for example, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's trampling on God's image which you naturally bear. I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. All you are is a mirror, mirroring the image of God. So, so what you say about your image is what you're saying about his image because you don't originate an image. You project an image or reflect an image, right? So when you look at your life, do you see image and likeness of God or do you see another image that isn't real? Mirrors cannot produce images. Mirrors only reflect images. We are mirrors. So, you and I mirror the image and likeness of God. What we call other human beings or ourselves, we must call God because all of us are His reflectors and the projectors of the image that He carries and we reflect in the earth. We don't produce an image, we reflect it. That's why 
and just a little plug, I take a whole chapter and explain this in my book. But anyway, that's why I use the language that I've been using the past six months of reality and delusion. This is exactly why. And let me give you, let me give you a great example of this. Okay, let me give you a great example. And I, I wish I had brought this, but I didn't. So y'all are just going to have to use your imaginations. All right. If I took a mirror and held it in front of you, and it was spray-painted white, there's spray-paint all over it, you can't see a mirrored image in it, right? Spray-painted white. If I did that and held it up to you guys, brand-new mirror, but it spray-painted it, okay, you would probably say or think that that mirror is now garbage. Like, what's, what's the point of having a mirror if it doesn't reflect an image? Okay? So, how would we bring this mirror back to reality again? Would we throw it away and go buy a new one? I mean, you probably have to if it was spray-painted white. Now, let me add another piece to this. Okay, so remember that. While we're here, what if you, the one trying to help the mirror, thought it was permanent spray paint because that's what you were told your whole life? Looking at the mirror, what if you thought this is permanent spray paint? And you're the one trying to help the mirror. Okay? Then because in your mind there's nothing that could be done, the only option would be this mirror has been eternally changed and therefore is incapable of being what it was designed to be. So throw it away and move on. I call this the double delusion. We, the ones who are supposed to be redeeming the lost, have been told that the lost are permanently damaged on an identity level and unless we throw them away and try out with new people, they're helpless. We're helpless, and the cause is helpless, right? So we're stuck in a cycle of the loss being covered in something that's keeping them from being what they are designed to be, and us, the ones who are supposed to be helping them, misunderstanding what they're covered by. So the lost never get free, and we, the supposedly free, are still kind of lost because we have misunderstood what we were covered by in the first place. Then, what if I told you that the mirror was spray-painted with fake snow? That all you have to do is get a wet washcloth and wipe it off, and it's brand new again. Okay? In that imaginary scenario... We've thrown something away because it's covered in what we have been told is something permanent. So they never got free, even though what they were in reality covered with was something that if we would just get a little bit of a wet washcloth and wipe it down, it would be brand new again. All that takes is a little bit of time and a little bit of proximity and a little bit of intention. Right? What Jesus and the early church did, and what has been happening in us lately, is the Lord showing us that isn't permanent paint, it's fake snow. 
fake snow comes off with a wet towel. No need to throw it away. What is still, um, excuse me, no need to throw away what is still and what it's designed to be originally. Someone just needs to love it enough to wipe away what's hiding reality. So what the Lord, see, we've been taught, we're literally, and I'm quoting theologians in the past in America at this point, uh, and I forget the guy's name, that we are snow-covered dung. That is from a theology textbook that people learn to this day in seminary. That we are nothing but snow-covered dung. Snow is the stuff Jesus covered us in, but at the DNA level, we're just dung. This, this is most of the American church. It is. What the Lord's coming in to show us is that because of the cross, there is no dung under there. It's just snow. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Why? Because I choose to make them white as snow. And if God makes the choice, you don't have a say in it. If God chooses you to be white as snow, guess what? I can't affect that decision. This is the cross. Why? Because when he is being taken to the cross, he's being crucified by all the religious people and all the Gentiles. Together, hand in hand, killing him. And what does he do at the cross? Forgive them. They just don't know. Huh? Forgive them. Right? And what we would have said in our Western thinking is at the cross, we would have said, condemn them. There's, let, me, let, me, let me say this. Let me say this. We have viewed this as a book of atonement. I'm going to explain this because none of y'all have any clue what I'm talking about. We have seen this scripture, all the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, as a book that talks about atonement. The whole thing. We'll read the Old Testament as our forceful way of saying that God's angry, and we'll read the New Testament as Jesus coming in to show us the grace and kindness side of God and the goodness of Him stepping in and taking God's anger on our behalf. And it's a whole book of atonement. Even that idea that I talked about, penal substitution atonement, is not an atonement theory. It's an appeasement theory. In other words, if Jesus steps in between God's anger and lightning bolts and wrath, and us, but Jesus steps in and says, please don't. He's not atoning because the anger's still there and we're still dung. He's just appeasing the wrath until a future time. So it, it, it is illegal to call that penal substitutionary atonement theory. It's not an atonement theory. It's penal substitutionary appeasement theory at best. But we have used this to preach atonement. This is not a book of atonement. Atonement absolutely happened, but this is not a book of atonement. This is a book that tells us through the ages of God and man working through what it means for man to be in the image and likeness of God and God to submit himself and his spin to include man made in the image and likeness of God. And the back and the forth of us messing up and God bringing us out and us messing up and God bringing us out. But there came a point when God said the process is going to stop right here and the word was made flesh and dwelt in us. And when he, Abba, Father, Son, Spirit, when he became flesh, the Son became flesh, not Abba. When the Son became flesh, he became two things. 
our permission to finally see clearly who the Father is, number one, and our permission to finally see clearly who we are. So when you look into the eyes of Jesus, you see the same image, the Father. But when you look into the eyes of Jesus to see the image of the Father, you see two images of the Father, his and ours, that reflects his. Y'all with me? Amazing. So, let me jump to Matthew 3. Is that where I said I was going? Matthew 3, yeah. Um, And I'm going to do something I don't do a lot. Eventually, I want to get from Matthew 3. Not today. Not today, so I don't want to scare you. Eventually, I want to get from Matthew 3 to Matthew 8, so the end of Matthew 7. And um, so, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to just start walking through this, and when when we're done, we're done, okay? Um, But I want to point out a couple of things before I get into this. Number one... What, what happens, the statement I made earlier is a really big statement, and I know it didn't make a lot of sense about this is not a book of atonement. That is a huge statement. Huge statement. Because if it's not, suddenly we have to start reading all of these stories that, told, that we thought told of a futuristic, disembodied soul reality and start bringing them into reality, what, which is called... Um, uh, a, a, let's call it this, a, a new exodus. The whole Bible tells the story of exodus. Not the book of exodus. It tells the story of, of an exodus. Okay? It starts with the garden. And they fall and they are brought out of the garden and they begin to move east. Okay? And the Lord brings slaves out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, and invites them to come back in to that garden reality. The marriage. There's an exodus, okay? They mess it up later on. They go into Babylon and Assyria, and the Lord comes, and he begins to speak to them about an exodus. And Jesus comes. He brings that to pass. On the cross, he says, it is finished. What is finished? The process of you being brought out. Brought out of what? The slavery in your heart. Okay? So the whole Bible is talking about a story of exodus. When you begin to read that, when you begin to see this language, and I'm going to point it out, you start to see a totally new story, okay? Not different, but a new story that is what the early church gave their lives for. It's what has kept this thing pushing through the ages, and it's the story of God here and now, okay? So John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to start at verse 1, and then I'm going to just point out some things along the way, so y'all track with me. Uh, in those days... John the Baptist, or the baptizer, I like to say that because he wasn't a Baptist, but anyway. Um, (laughs) In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, here was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, metanoia, what is repent? Changing how you think, which produces you going in a different direction, okay? So change how you think so that you can be turned around to see that the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophets, uh, through the prophet Isaiah. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Let me read you a verse in Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 6. I didn't have enough markers to mark all these, so y'all just excuse my flipping today. But um, Proverbs 3, verse 6. Let me read you this verse. Uh, Let me start at verse 5. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Very familiar. Listen to this next verse. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. This is what I spoken of John. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is what Solomon says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and what will happen? Straight paths. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The one calling in the wilderness says, prepare the way for the Lord. By what? Repenting, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change how you think. And by doing that, you make straight paths for the Lord. How do you make straight paths for the Lord? You trust in the Lord, you lean not on your understanding, and you submit all your ways to him. Amazing. Verse 4. John clo- John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. All very, very, very imagery symbolic. I'm not going to get into all that today, but it, it is fun if you study it. Verse 5. People went out. Listen to this. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, where were the people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan? Where were they going? Where was John? In the wilderness. You, you, you seeing some of this? Okay. And what do they do in the wilderness? They confess their sins. Okay. What did God tell them to do day one, two, and three? Consecrate themselves. What is sin? Sin, Greek word, hamartia. Ha means without or negative. And meros, the other, the other part of that word, means form or portion. So hamartia, translated sin, is without or negative form or portion. So for you to sin, just a review, is uh, if you look up the word in a lexicon, it means to miss the mark, hamartia, which is absolutely right and absolutely short in understanding, okay? So it's not, there's the mark, I'm going to shoot, oh man, I missed. That's not what hamartia is talking about. Hamartia is talking about you not being in proper form. So there's the target. This is what it means to sin. There's the target, but you're aiming this way. And it doesn't matter how dead on your arrow is, because you're without your proper form, you miss 100% of the time. So what Jesus comes in to do is not teach you how to be a better shooter. Jesus comes in to move your feet in the right direction so that you can shoot and hit it every time. That's what hamartia means, without form. So they were confessing their formlessness, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Baptized in the Jordan River. Okay, so much. Where, where did they cross to come into the promised land? The Jordan River. What happened in the Jordan River was God parted the waters the same way he did when they left Egypt. They left Egypt through a parting of waters, and they entered the promised land through a parting of waters. They go back into the wilderness, 
But this time, instead of walking on dry ground, they are baptized in the waters that God parted on their behalf. They're baptized in an understanding that God will make a way for you to get back into the promised land. Okay, 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 But when he saw, I want you to hear this, verse 7. But when he saw John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, check this out, you brood of vipers, a little harsh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There's that word. Can't wait for this. Verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What stones? What is he talking about? When Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, the Lord tells him to go into the Jordan River and to pick out 12 stones and bring them with you and place them as a monument so that when your kids ask, what are those things, you can continually remind them of how the Lord brought you here. They're standing at the Jordan River but they're standing on the wilderness side of the Jordan River. The Sadducees and Pharisees come in who have been preaching the message of a physical works-based exodus. They come to where John is baptizing, and he says, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with a change of thinking, a change of perspective, Pharisees and Sadducees. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Listen, he says, the axe is already laid at the root, remember this, of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's really interesting. Really interesting. Okay? Because again, if you're reading this with an atonement theory mindset, all you just read is, if you don't work this thing out, God's throwing you in the fire. Lord, like, I, I, can't, I don't even know where to start with that. Wrong. Okay? That's, this is not what this is talking Even if that's a reality, this is not what this is talking about. If you go back to Isaiah 6.13... Isaiah begins to see a vision of a cut-down tree as well. And he says, let me just read it to you so you don't think I'm making this up. Isaiah 6, at the end of this, he says, These people will go into exile, um, their ears will never hear, their eyes will uh, never see, they'll never perceive, etc., until the day the Lord has sent everybody far away and the land is utterly forsaken. He's talking about slavery. They're being sent away, right? But even though a tenth in the land remain, it'll be laid waste. But as a terebinth and an oak leave stumps when they are cut down. He just talked about Israel being cut down. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown to the fire. But as a terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
John is preparing the way for what? The Holy Seed, Jesus. So he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the law people that the axe is laid at the, at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. But, Isaiah 6, as a tree, when it is cut down, leaves a stump, so will this tree and this stump, having been cut down, be the holy seed in the land. So what's he going to throw into the fire? The cut down tree. What's the cut down tree? Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What, what's the tree? The tree is the slavery. The tree is the mindset of the Pharisees. Because he's talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the Israelites. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that have come up. And he says to them, leading a works-based, do this and you'll become this mentality and religion. He looks at them and he says, the Lord has already started the process of cutting that down. But immediately when they heard the language of a cut-down tree, they're the leaders of the law. They know Isaiah. They have it memorized. Immediately when they hear the language of a cut-down tree being thrown in the fire, it hits them. That's what Isaiah said. But the stump is going to produce something that we will not see, which is the holy seed. When God comes in to cut down the religious system, what does Jesus spend his entire ministry doing? Cutting down the religious system. When God comes in to cut down the religious system, what's going to be left is a stump. And what the stump is, is what the tree at its core really is, which is a pure tree. Verse 11. I, this is getting real fun. I, John, baptize you in water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Okay? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. Now, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word spirit there in Greek has three meanings. It's breath, it's spirit, and it's wind. So for the sake of describing what I'm about to describe, describe, let's say the holy wind. Okay? He will baptize you in the holy wind and in fire. But then... John goes in and talks about his winnowing fork. It's in his hand. He's coming to clear the threshing fork, gather wheat into his barn, burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. And, and again, we've always said, because we view this as a book of atonement, that all the bad people are the chafe, and all the good people are the wheat. Right? This is what we've said. That this is not, but John's not talking about separating people. In fact, the wheat cannot grow without the chafe. It's one thing. It grows 
requiring each other until the point where it becomes something pure. And at the point that it becomes something pure, here's what they would do. They would take a winnowing fork. They would go into this big pile. They would stick their fork in it, and they would throw it in the air. Why? Because if you throw it in the air, the wind blows through, and the wheat falls to the ground while the chafe blows away. So what you are left with is wheat. What you are left with is something that can be used to bring about life. The chafe was nothing of use at that point in that grain's life. Therefore, it is blown away. Well, what did they do with all the chafe that was blown away? Burned it so that it could not live again. Who is he talking to? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right? So he said, he's going to come and he's going to baptize you in the holy wind and in fire. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to pick you up and throw you in the wind. All symbolically. And there in the wind, the Spirit's going to come and blow. And as it blows, the parts of you that are no longer useful, works-based religion, is going to be blown away. And what's going to be left is who you really are. But here's what the, he's not going to stop there. He's going to take all the stuff that you are not designed for, and he's going to burn it in a fire that the devil or anybody else cannot put out. In other words, if the fire cannot be put out, what does it do? It burns until it is completely destroyed. Th this is what John is talking about. So, well, all of a sudden, we're, see, see, do you see this? This is all orthodox. If you're sitting in a, in a first, second century, any, any century, and if you go really anywhere around the world today, th this is what this is talking about. This isn't something brand new. This is what this means. You know what I'm saying? But we've been so caught up in our mindset of dividing people and making sure we're not like them and they're not like us and they're not around us because we're not like them and they're not like us. We've been so in that mindset and not just in the church, in politics, in everything. Right? Republicans don't want to talk to Democrats, and Democrats don't want to talk to Republicans because everybody disagrees on stuff. And I promise you, if we could, I, got, I keep moving this around, I'm sorry. If we could get to the point where we say, you know what, you and me, we're the same. We're humans. Now, all of a sudden, the difference is, why did the Israelites have such a hard time in the New Testament? The Jews had a very difficult time with the gospel in the New Testament. You see this over and over and over. Why? Because all of a sudden, the God, in their minds, this thing was exclusive to them. This is our God. The Gentiles, those, like, those guys are... What did it say in Exodus? In Exodus, in the very beginning, he says to them, the whole earth is mine but you are to be the mediator between me and the whole earth kingdom of priests to tell them that don't even know who i am that they're mine gentiles 
So Paul and then early, mostly Paul, um, Peter has a big issue with this too at one point. But Paul begins to go to the Gentiles and say, hey, guess what? This is what God is. This is what Jesus did. This is what God thinks about you, and you're included. And the Jews are saying, huh? Included? Jesus dies, rises again, ascends, and now out of seemingly thin air. We have a brand new story. Gentiles, come on in. You're good. Before Jesus dies, y'all stay away. Jesus ascends. Come on in. It's all good. What? Unless that was never the story to begin with. Unless Jesus came to make it clear, I didn't bring you out of Egypt so that you alone would be mine. I brought you out of Egypt for the special purpose of telling everybody else they're mine. But because you failed to consecrate the slavery mentality within, you and I never had that conversation. You were listening to Moses. Man, 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 man. I want to get so bad to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. I might, I might, I might, I might. So let me, let me just, let me just uh, finish out chapter 3. Y'all good? Y'all solid? All right. Verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John uh, tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you, come, um, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw. Who saw? John the Baptist. saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning, uh, excuse me, alighting? I don't, that's a very weird word in the NIV. Um, (laughs) God descended like a dove and remained, it should be, on him, is what the Hebrew or uh, Greek is. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. The first thing that happens in Jesus' life, now remember the Exodus, the first thing that happens is God affirms his identity before he does anything. This is my son. When he goes to the mountain with Peter, James, and John of transfiguration, on the mountain, who does he meet with? God, Moses, and the prophet Elijah. Elijah is significant because when he wanted to take his life, do you know where he ran? Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, which is where God met with the Israelites in Exodus. So, Jesus goes to the mountain, meets with Moses, meets with Elijah, and meets with the Lord. And do you know know what the Lord says on that mountain? This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to everything that he says. Two times, we see that God verbally, in front of others, speaks to Jesus, and both times, all he says is affirming identity. This is my son. What if you heard from God twice in your life, and those two times, all he said was, you are my daughter, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes off, and do you, listen, listen, listen. Do you know what the first miracle Jesus does? He turns water into wine. Where? At a wedding. What was Sinai? A wedding. (laughs) 
they run out of wine, and Jesus goes to the water, and he produces enough wine to last them as long as they want, and saves the best wine for last. What does Jesus come to do? Bring them into a new exodus, and a new Jerusalem, and the prophets say that the glory of that house is greater than the glory of the point. The wine of that house is better at the end than it was at the beginning. And then, what does Jesus do? In John, right after that, where does he go? The temple to turn the tables over. <laughs> All right. Jesus is tested in the wilderness, um, which, again, is extremely significant. Okay? He goes into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Moses with the Lord on the mountain? 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted. He says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Okay? All these temptations line up. I'm going to let you go back and read those because I really want to point something out in the Sermon on the Mount. But he, and I might go back and hit these next week. But he goes back. Jesus begins to preach. He preaches the message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message, right? If you back it up, he is the prophet Isaiah's fulfillment that the land of Zebulun, land of Natali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Just, just, just real fast, real fast. Okay? People living in darkness have seen a great light. When the Israelites are in Egypt, as slaves, they are in darkness. The Lord shows up and says, you're coming home. For the people in a great darkness, a light has dawned. Led out in the night by what? A pillar of light, fire. Are y'all okay? Okay. He calls his first disciples. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, he begins to heal the sick. I just want you to go back and point out that it says Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and then healing the sick. He's teaching. See, this is what we do, especially, Lord, in the charismatic church, which I, is a good thing that we pray for the sick. But typically, the people who are very focused on praying for the sick have no time for teaching and proclaiming the good news. And the good news is not healing for the sick. The good news is healing for the sick. What sick? Slavery. Exodus. So he begins teaching them what? Change how you think. And as they begin to hear the message of changing how they think, suddenly who they are begins to line up with who they are. When they left Egypt, I don't know what happened to that. Y'all just ignore that. When they left Egypt, okay, slavery to free, which should have produced slavery to free. This time the Lord comes in and goes slavery to free, which produces slavery to free. Healing. Very interesting. That's why I believe we're about to see healing like we've never seen before because we're starting out with a change in how we think. Now when Je so Sermon on the Mount, here we go. When Jesus, uh, man, it's early, praise God. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside. I'm almost done. Um, he went up to the mountainside. Sound familiar? I hope you're all catching on to this by now. He went up to the mountainside, and he sat down. On the mountain of Sinai, the Lord came down and remained. He sat down on the top of the mountain, okay? His disciples, who were his disciples, his people, came to him, and he began to teach them. And here's what he says. You ready? Who were they? Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who, who were the Israelites when they came out of Egypt? Poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. They hungered and thirst for They were merciful. They were pure in heart. They were peacemakers, and they were persecuted because of who they were. <clears throat> and he says, theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets um, who were before you. Now, ready? I'm going to end with this. I just wanted to get to this for fun. You, we've heard this before. You are the salt of the earth. Amen, brother. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Whew. Now, we've all heard the messages, right? You, which is, aren't wrong and aren't bad, okay? Just to be clear before I say this, because I'm, I'm about to sound like I don't agree with them, and I do. But we've all heard the messages. Oh, you're the salt of the earth. And salt sometimes is a, li it's a little sour. And sometimes salt purifies. But that's who we are, which is a great message, okay? It's just not in context. It's a good message, and I, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. But just to be clear, that's what, that's, Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking to Israelites at this point. And he says to these Israelites, you are the salt of the earth. Now, back in Exodus 30, verses 34 through 35, and I'm not going to do this anymore, I don't think. Um, but I, I need to read it so that you guys don't go home and say, Josh, preach a bunch of stuff that ain't in here. Because um, I'm sure you all probably do that. Exodus 30, verses 34 through 35. And if you do, you're wrong because it all is in here. Um, let me just read this real quick. 30, verses 34 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum, resin, um, onacha, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense. Okay? The work of a perfumer. And listen to this. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. They would put salt in their incense. What was their incense? Their worship, okay? Their offering to purify it for worship. Israel, coming out of Egypt, was God's offering and humanity's offering back to God to the earth, okay? They were to be the kingdom of priests. They were to be the salt of the earth 
that purified as it went up. Okay. Because what were they? They were the kingdom of priests. They were the mediators between God and the earth. Right? So they were to be the salt that purified. Okay? But listen to what he says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If you forgot and lost who you are, how can you remember again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, this system that they have bought into from the very beginning in Exodus 19 at the Mount Sinai is, this is all about what we do. We don't need to leave slavery within because we've left slavery out of Egypt. It's all about what we've done, what we do, who we are externally, right? He's coming and saying, that is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Why? Because I need to bring a new salt into you that starts here and goes out from there. So this is what Jesus is talking about. But then he goes into this. Oh, I am going to do it one more time. Isaiah 40, verse 66. Um, just one more time, one more time. I promise, I promise, I promise. Um, next week I'll have all these written down, maybe. Isaiah 40. I'm not, this is not from notes, by the way. This is just all, you know, just straight, just out of the Lord. Um, Isaiah 42, 66. Now, here's what he says. To the, you are the light of the world. Amazing. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp in light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Who are the others? That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Who, who, are, who is he talking to? Israelites. If he's talking to Israelites, who are the others? Non-Israelites or the world. You are the light of the world. What's he talking about? You're like, you are absolutely Christian. You are absolutely the light of the world. But what Jesus is talking about is this, Isaiah 42, 60, uh, 42, that's not even, um, I must have miswrote this. Um, he says in Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you be to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon of those who sit in darkness. Let me say it just one more time, okay? I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of what? Your heart. This is Isaiah dreaming of a new exodus that is to come that will start from the heart level. I will take, the Lord says, take hold of your um, I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you, you, Israel, to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Israel is called to be a light to the Gentiles. Random, right? No, because in the original promise and covenant, they were to be the kingdom of priests or the light for the Gentiles. 
So God is saying, a new day is coming where I'm going to take you by the hand and I'm going to make you at a DNA level what you should have been when you left Egypt but refused to submit to. You are the light of the world. Isaiah 42, 6. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Neither does God light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead... The lamp is put on a stand. Speaking of Revelation, go back in Revelation, you'll see a lot about lights, uh, lamp stands. And it gives light to everyone in the house. Let me just say it like Jesus is talking about. Instead, God put you on a stand and will put you on a stand, okay? And you will give light to everyone in the globe. That's, that's what this analogy is. is. In the same way as that analogy, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify your Father in heaven because your good deeds mirror that which is your Father in heaven. Okay. Last part, last part, last part. Now, what about the law? Well, I mean, what about the covenant? After Jesus reminds them of what they are on a DNA identity level originally, check out what he says. Brings them out of Egypt. He says, you are a kingdom of priests and then gives them the law. Right here on a mountainside where he has sat down to teach God's people he reminds them that they're the salts of the earth and the light of the world. And then he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until what? Everything in the law has been accomplished. What, okay, what was the law designed to do? Teach them how to be human again. What did Jesus come to do? Make them human again. None of it will pass away until everything is accomplished. Now listen to what he says, and this is directly pointed at the teachers of the law. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, okay, okay. So he's saying what the teachers of the law have done and the Pharisees is they have taught, they have taught the commands religiously that if we're being real... Um, makes their pockets bigger and keeps them in power. So they've set aside the ones about taking care of the oppressed. They've set aside the ones about loving their neighbor. They've set aside those, but what they have preached is the tithe. And what they have preached is the laws that say, if you do this, we get to murder you. 
He says, anybody who has set aside the ones that matter for the ones that benefits them, essentially, will be called the least. They're not going to have a say in this kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, including those, including learning how to be who you are, those people will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you go back to the Beatitudes, you see this. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses or your right standing, okay? Unless your right standing, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What are the teachers of the law? Their righteousness is all about what they have done. Jesus tells them later that they pretend. The outside of their cup they clean, but the inside is dirty. Right? So it's all about the image that they project. Jesus says, unless you go beyond the image you project and actually become the image that you're projecting, you will certainly not enter this kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless you do that, you will completely miss this kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Y'all good? Okay, Matt, come up here because that helps me wrap it up. Or sometimes it keeps it going. That's okay. Because I got a point to all this, okay? So I'm not here just to talk about Israel. I, I, do th- I do think we need to have a better understanding of Israel. Because in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, which I believe, um, for years I've believed, is Paul. But there's, there's a lot of evidence, and a lot of the scholarship is leaning towards Hebrews being written by a woman. Um, that's actually really the consensus um, in a lot of scholarship, which I think is unbelievable, Right? And it's further proof of the legitimacy of this thing because in that day and age, something written by a woman had no validity. So they trusted the authority of something such as the book of Hebrews in the hands of a woman, which tells us they would not have done that if they were trying to fake something. Anyway, in Hebrews, it says to both Gentiles and Jews, check this out, it says all who believe are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. That I said this Tuesday night, and excuse my, that would have been a gigantic middle finger to the Jews. A huge one. He says, all who believe are Abraham's seed To be Abraham's seed means you are a legitimate, full-blooded Jew or God's people. All who believe are Abraham's seed and heirs to Abraham's promise. And the Jews would have been like, huh? No, you know what I mean? And so what Jesus is doing in this is he's bringing the Gentiles in, not on a new plan, he's bringing the Gentiles in on the original plan, and has now, what does Peter call us in the New Testament? Anybody have an idea? We are a royal priesthood, which makes no sense unless you know the story of the original mouthpiece the Israelites, okay? Now Peter's saying, all who believe 
are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? That means we are the mediators between God and the globe to say Jesus has done something that has inaugurated a kingdom that the least of these is the top of in this. I mean, this is huge. So we need to understand how the Israelites both missed it, but how God came in and redeemed it on the back half so that we can understand our role in the story, which is to make sure that we are the light of the world, to make sure that we are the salt of the earth, and to understand what that means, to make sure that we understand that He's coming in with a winnowing fork, not to throw you away, but to throw you in the wind so that all the junk can blow away and be burned in a fire that you could not possibly put out if you wanted to, so that what is left is wheat that is turned into food that is turned into life. And then he goes in and he says to the Israelites, he says, let me give you an example. You have heard, I've said this before, and this ruffles some feathers. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, he's directly, this is Exodus 20, verse 13. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Moses told y'all <laughs> that you shall not murder. But I, who is he? John tells us, in the beginning was who? The Word. But I am the word that you should have heard back then, but because you refused to lay down your lives to find it, you didn't hear. You heard and processed from Moses to not murder, but I'm telling you what was really supposed to be heard, which was anybody who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject. He compares anger to murder. Now, murder is something physical and something material, right? If I walk in and murder somebody, that is something physical. It's something you can see. It's something that I have done. But anger is something that you cannot see, but is on the heart level. You heard that you shouldn't murder people. I'm telling you, you need to take care of the root of murder, which is the anger within you that people might not see. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Okay. <clears throat> you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his, what? Heart. You were told that you need to be careful what you do. I'm telling you, you need to be careful what you look like so your heart doesn't become something that does something. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman and commits adultery with her. Again, you have heard it said to the people on go, do not break your oath, but I tell you don't swear an oath at all by heaven or earth or God's throne or anything. 
All you need to say is a yes or no, anything beyond this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but love those who hate you. Turn the other cheek, okay? And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, you give them your coat as well. Are y'all getting some of this? I know I'm going a little longer, okay? You have heard this last part. Six one, six times. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let me fix this. Verse 45 in the NIV says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The Greek is, hapos, huyas, pater, oranos. That's the Greek. And do you know what that Greek is? This is Western thinking being translated into your Bible, okay? The Western NIV says, Love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. When you read that, what do you think? If you don't love those who hate you, and if you don't pray for those who persecute you, you're not going to be father, children of your Father in heaven. But what the Greek says, Hopos huios pater oranos, says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you as a son of your Father in heaven. We have a totally different text now. In one of those, you have to do that in order to be children of your Father in heaven. In the Greek original text, you do that because you are children of your Father in heaven. What it, Jesus came to cut down the stump that is translated right here. And I'm not, I mean, like, this is why we have to study this. Jesus came in to show that this is who you are. And because this is who you are, this is what your life should look like. <clears throat> I'm going to stop right there. We'll, we'll keep going next week. I, I want to keep going so bad. That's why I should have notes. What, what I'm trying to do, though, what I'm trying to do is show you. I said this last week. We spent the first half of last year talking about the purpose of creation and the story of God. We spent the second half of last year talking about God's nature and the role of God's nature in this whole thing. And I believe the Lord shifted us at the beginning of this year, last week. He shifted us into a place. Now that you know the purpose of creation, and now that you know my nature, let me tell you who you are. Because up until this point, most of us, if we're being honest, have only known a relationship with God that is based on what we do. If we're being completely honest, and even in the messages of Song of Songs, if you've been here long enough, and even in the messages last year of God is love, and even though we've walked through identity after identity after identity after identity, even through all of that, there was still some subtle hint down below of this relationship at some level is contingent on what I've done. And Jesus is coming in to flip the whole thing on its head. And he says things like, you will know a tree by its fruit. He says, you'll know somebody's identity based on what you see. He does not say what you see becomes their identity. And he comes and he flips the whole thing on top of its head. 
and he says, I'm going, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, all they do is teach you what to do. I'm going to come teach you who you are, and I'm going to trust that if you find out and believe you are who I say you are, that you're going to start doing the things you need to be doing. So I'm going to, I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to pray, and then we'll be done. We'll be out. Um, but I want to challenge you. Go through and start to read some. Of the, I would just challenge you. Go, maybe go back front and start at Genesis. Go all the way through. And start making some of these connections. Because these are massive. We've misunderstood the winnowing fork because we just didn't know what it meant in that day and age for somebody to use a winnowing fork. We, we, never mind, I'm going to stop right there. I was about to go into some other parables. The parable, y'all go, bow your heads, close your eyes. Bow your head, close your eyes. I'm going to pray. But as you're praying, the parable of Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable, three parables, really one, three different ports, three different points of it. And he tells the story of three things that are lost. A coin, a sheep, and a son. None of those have anything to do with ownership. None of those have anything to do with ownership. 100% of those have to do with placement. So Jesus comes not so that we'll have a new owner. Jesus comes in to fix our issue of placement. And the way that he comes in to fix our issue of placement is by fixing our issue of not knowing who our owner is. So Lord, I pray right now, as we wrap this up, I pray that you would, A, bring us back home in the way that we think, in the way that we process, in the way that we see, would you bring us back home and back into alignment with what is real? Show us the things that we thought were permanent are just a bunch of spray snow that can be wiped off if we will allow you to wipe it off of us. But I, I pray that you would bring us back into alignment so that in the right alignment we can begin to see and do and be what we are supposed to be, which is a kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood in the globe to be the mouthpiece and the mediator between God and man to say what is real and what is not real and who people are and who they are not. Let that be, let that be how we respond to things going on in the world. Instead of responding to what people do, what if we started responding to people as if they have forgotten who they are, but I'm going to make sure they know who they are and trust that what they do will follow? So, Lord, we, we honor you in this place. I thank you for just another week. I pray right now for healing over every single person dealing with this COVID stuff right now. I pray that you would meet them. Most of them are watching this right now. I've talked to, uh, over text to a lot of you. Um, so, Lord, I, I pray that you would meet them right now where they are and you would bring a touch from heaven, from the throne room that would immediately bring them into a place of feeling better, that would immediately bring them back into their right mind because that brain fogginess is legit. 
when you were in that COVID stuff. So, Lord, I pray that you would bring their mind back into order, their bodies and health back into order, and that you would take care of this COVID stuff in Jesus' name. I pray over everybody else. I have family members who are uh, not just dealing with COVID, who are dealing with other situations. Lord, I pray healing. We speak healing in Jesus' name because we are coming back into an authority that can only be held by those who are back in the belief and understanding of who we really are. So we're approaching the throne of grace boldly to make our petitions known because there is nothing hindering our prayer. We don't have to twist God's arm. We don't have to beg. We don't have to plead. We don't have to do the thing that I used to do that says, Lord, I will never do this again if you'll just do this. We don't have to do that. We can be convinced of who we are. And Jesus taught us to pray as he prays. So, Lord, I pray that we would pray with the authority that the Son prays with. When Jesus speaks something, there isn't a question of how the Father will respond. So, Lord, I pray that we would... Let me, let me pray. Let me say it like this. Jesus said, I do nothing I haven't seen the Father do. Lord, I pray that we will have such a sight for what Abba is doing that we would begin to live our lives in a way that says, I do nothing I haven't seen the Father do. So we pray over people because we've seen the Father move in their lives. And we do nothing we haven't seen the Father do. And as we begin to see that, now there is a trust that rises up in us that says, I'm speaking something into existence the Father has done. I'm not pulling his arm. So, Lord, I have, I have seen in prayer, in dreams, healing for the nations. And, Lord, I'm speaking that right now in Jesus' name. And we believe that and we receive it and we honor you in this place. I pray for devotion times this week like we have never had in our lives. I pray the fire, the winnowing fork, and the fire that is unquenchable, that burns off the chafe. I pray that we would feel that in the secret place this week and become such a pure wheat in the earth that as we are moved and worked into it, it permeates the entire batch. We love you and honor you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. I love you guys. Tuesday night we'll be back here. And um, hope you all have a great week. See you.